You may remember the Andy Murray song titled Granddaddy Was a Farmer, the chorus of which goes like this. He's a full measure man. He won't tell you a lie. When Cyrus rolls his wagon to the scales, just wave him right on by. Level on the level, signed with a shake of a hand, unaffected, well-connected, simple, honest man. It's a song about a man named Cyrus Bomberger, and in Ken Morse's book, Preaching in a Tavern, and 129 other surprising stories from Brethren Life, the Andy Murray lyrics for the song are included in, in an entry that also says this. Cyrus Bomberger was a preacher farmer of the Spring Creek Congregation in Lebanon County, Pennsylvania. He had a reputation as a man of unflinching integrity. When he took his wagon loads of wheat to Lebanon to be sold, the miller there told his workers that they need not examine the wheat, either to question its weight or to check it for moisture. For Cyrus Bomberger was a man of his word. He's a full measure man. He won't tell you a lie. When Cyrus rolls his wagons to the scales, just wave him right on by. Level on the level, signed with a shake of a hand, unaffected, well-connected, simple, honest man. Andy Murray wrote a number of folk songs about brethren heroes, and the theme that seems to run through all of them is this. They were all people of integrity. It's interesting. Brethren heroes may have courage. They may confront difficulty or opposition. They may do the thing that no one expects, a normal, self-interested, self-protecting, self-preserving people person to do. But also, always, the reason, the root of their decisions, their actions, is their integrity. In Morse's book, the story of Cyrus Bomberger, which he titles A Simple Honest Man, is story number 51. But story number 50 which he titles A Dunkard and His Horse, impresses me even more. It's an account told by a Confederate officer of an unnamed brethren farmer shortly after the Battle of Gettysburg, and there are two reasons that it impresses me even more than the story of Cyrus Bomberger. First, the person whose integrity is highlighted is anonymous. His name is not known not just to us, but to the persons he encounters and who observe his behavior. So there's no reward of ego or personal admiration in the actions he takes. He is shielded from being motivated by those kinds of things. And second, his character is not defined in terms of his accomplishments as an individual virtue, but it's something that he holds within relationship of his faith community. It's part of his connectedness. The context of the story is this. Following the Battle of Gettysburg, retreating Confederate soldiers encountered a Dunkard, a brethren, farmer, who lived in the area. And they took his horse because their own horses were footsore or hoofsore, too worn out to carry them on their retreat or to pull their wagons or their cannons. The officer giving the account says this. Near Hagerstown, Maryland, I had an experience with an old Dunkard which gave me high and lasting respect for people of that faith. My scouts had a horse transaction with this old gentleman, and he came to see me about it. 
He made no complaint, but said it was his only horse, and as the scouts had told him we had some hoof-sore horses we should have to leave behind, he came to ask if I would trade him one of those for his horse, as without one his crop would be lost. I recognized the old man at once as a born gentleman in this delicate characterization of the transaction as a trade. I was anxious to make the trade as square as the circumstances would permit, so I assented to his taking a footsore horse and offering him besides payment in Confederate money. This he respectfully but firmly declined. Considering how the recent battle had gone, I waived argument on the point of its value, but tried another suggestion. I told him we were in Maryland as guests of the United States, that after our departure, the government would pay all bills left behind, and that I would give him an order on the United States for the value of his horse and have it approved by General Longstreet. To my surprise, he declined this also. I suppose then he was simply ignorant of the bonanza in a claim against the government, and I explained that, and telling him that money was no object to us under the circumstances, I offered to include the value of his whole farm. He said again he wanted nothing but the footsore horse. Still anxious that the war would not grind this poor fellow into poverty, I suggested that he take two or three footsore horses which we would have to leave anyhow when we marched. Then he said, Well, sir, I am a dunkard, and the rule of our church is an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and a horse for a horse, and I can't break that rule. I replied that the Lord who made all horses knew that a good horse was worth a dozen old battery scrub, and after some time I prevailed upon him to take two by calling one of them a gift. But that night, about midnight, we were awakened by approaching hoofs and turned out expecting to receive some order. It was my old dunkard leading one of his footsores. Well, sir, he said, you made it look all right to me today when you were talking, but after I went to bed tonight, I got to thinking, and I don't think I can explain it to the church, and I would rather not try. With that, he tied old footsore to the fence and rode off abruptly. The Confederate officer concludes his comments with these words. Even at this late date, it is a relief to my conscience to tender to his sect this recognition of their integrity and honesty. In lieu of the extra horse which I vainly endeavored to throw into the trade, their virtues should commend them to all financial institutions in search of incorruptible employees. As we continue in this Values and Identity summer series, the theme today is simplicity and authenticity. We might think of that in very literal terms. Simplicity in terms of plain clothes or no decorations or even minimal spending. Simplicity in terms of our physical, material life. And of course it could be expressed in all those ways. What resources we consume, how we spend our money, our stewardship, all those things testify to the matter of whether or not simplicity is part of our lives. 
But simplicity in the gospel sense, at least in terms of the scripture texts for this evening in particular, may be even more about integrity in terms of keeping your story simple, keeping your focus sharp on what is honest and right, being reliably and consistently turned in the direction of not your own advantage, but the well-being of others. And doing all of that, not with some secret agenda of manipulation, aiming for advantage down the road or aiming for the goal of looking good, but doing all of what you do for the sake of being clear and true. As I said, the scripture for today from the Sermon on the Mount lands on several examples of what this sort of simplicity looks like. It looks like your yes being yes and your no being no. It looks like practicing your piety, doing your good works out of the public eye. It looks like being a person who trusts rather than tries to manipulate the resources around one's self. Maybe we might say in shorthand that simplicity in the Sermon on the Mount, in these teachings of Jesus, looks like the practice of truth, humility, and trust. Maybe Jesus is saying, keep it simple by being who you are and doing what you do for the right reasons and with the right motives. To try to be trustworthy, not just trusted, but trustworthy. How does that actually work? How do we inhabit that place of truth, humility, and trust? I think one way to talk about it is to say that the outside of you should match the inside of you. When the inside and the outside match up, there are fewer complications. Less inconsistency means fewer complications. People don't need to see everything about you. In fact, sometimes it's better if they don't, so that your own good works don't feed your ego. They don't need to see everything that's inside you, but when they see what's on the outside, if that matches what's on the inside, if what they see is what they get, then you can live a simpler and more settled life. You don't have to anxiously and defensively manage your persona. You can be yourself. You can be your true self, inside and outside. Now, this can be difficult in our world because in some ways the world works against such a match of inner and outer consistency right from the very beginning of our lives. Quaker writer Parker Palmer talks about this in a way that I find helpful. In a book, A Hidden Wholeness, The Journey Toward the Undivided Life, he explains it this way. All of us arrive on earth with souls in perfect form. But from the moment of birth onward, the soul or true self is assailed by deforming forces without and within, by racism, sexism, economic injustice, and other social cancers. 
by jealousy, resentment, self-doubt, fear, and other demons of the inner life. Most of us, he continues, can make a long list of the external enemies of the soul, in the absence of which we are sure we would be better people. Because we so quickly blame our problems on forces out there, we need to see how often we conspire in our own deformation. For every external power bent on twisting us out of shape, there is a potential collaborator within us. When our impulse to tell the truth is thwarted by threats of punishment, it is because we value security over being truthful. When our impulse to side with the weak is thwarted by threats of lost social standing, it is because we value popularity over being a pariah. The powers and principalities would hold less sway over our lives if we refuse to collaborate with them, he says. But refusal is risky, so we deny our own truth, take up lives of self-impersonation, and betray our identities. And yet... The soul persistently calls us back to our birthright form, back to lives that are grounded, connected, whole. I think that idea that we are persistently called back to our birthright form, called back to lives that are grounded and connected and whole is important. It's another way of saying that God keeps calling us home, calling us back to our authentic selves, calling us back to simple settledness, the simple settledness of truth-telling and humility and trust. The problem is that we put up walls between us and within us, thinking that these walls will somehow protect us as we hide behind them. Or even worse, that hiding the contradictions between our backstage selves and our onstage selves is a good strategy for living in the world. It's not. It only makes things more complicated as it deforms not only our own souls, but it deforms our relationships. These quote-unquote protective walls hide us from the world, but in the end, they also hide us from ourselves. So what is the answer? How do we become people of whom it is said, what you see is what you get? Or, he was a full-measure man. Or, I had an experience with an old dunkard which gave me high and lasting respect for the people of that faith. It's not easy, and it is easy. It's not easy in the sense that we are full of anxiety and mistrust, and we worry about whether we are enough, whether the real us is acceptable, whether the real us is lovable. It is not easy to be authentic when authenticity may lead to criticism or even rejection. We are scared of that. But aiming for authenticity, for matching up what's inside and outside, is easy in the sense that we already have the tools we need right in front of us. 
For one thing, we have teachings like the Sermon on the Mount, with its very colorfully specific instructions about how to live. Just say what you mean. Just keep yourself out of the limelight. Just trust that you will be okay. Because the truth is, you will be okay. God cares about you. It is easy in the sense that we have this counsel, this guidance, and it is also made easier when we realize that we are not alone in this. Everyone else is struggling with the same inconsistencies, the same vulnerabilities, the same temptations to hide behind protective walls of anxiety and ego. That's why we need community for accountability and for support, for courage and for encouragement. And we have such community. Parker Palmer says we need spaces where we can deepen our awareness of the endless inner-outer exchanges that shape us and our world and of the power we have to make choices. We need spaces within us and between us where we can learn to be hospitable to the soul. Solitude Solitude is one kind of space, but community is another, he says. That is, we need to look inside ourselves, but we also need others to look inside us. The way I would translate that is to say that we don't need more rules necessarily, but we do need more partners. We need more partners who hold up mirrors to us. Partners who tenderly probe what is fragile in us. Partners who willingly say to us, I know the Confederate soldiers took your horse and you want to get something in trade for it, but why exactly do you need two horses in exchange for one? And so while I like the story of Cyrus Bomberger, whose wagon of wheat didn't need to be examined and measured when it was pulled up onto the scales, I would have preferred that there be a part of the story that confirmed that Cyrus was only able to be as true and honest as those who surrounded him from the early moments of his life to that present moment. His parents who raised him, the church who nurtured him, the community that affirmed him, and probably somewhere along the way, someone who course-corrected him. We are in some ways alone in this quest for integrity, for authenticity. But in many ways, we are not alone. One more quote from Parker Palmer that speaks to those spaces we need of solitude and community. Solitude does not necessarily mean living apart from others, he writes. Rather, it means never living apart from one's self. And community does not necessarily mean you are always living face-to-face with others. Rather, it means never losing awareness that we are connected to each other. And finally, back to those scriptures from the Sermon on the Mount one more time. When Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, 
It seems he's telling us that our integrity needs to be planted in the soil of honesty. If you are not telling the truth, you are inevitably trying to control things that you cannot control. And you don't want to walk down that path. And when he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, it seems he's saying that our integrity has need of humility. For humility keeps our motives in the right place. And when he says, don't worry and don't strive for all the things that everyone else seems to worry about and strive for, it seems he is saying that what we need most of all is to trust God. Wholeness will not blossom without trust. It will not blossom in its natural beauty like the lilies of the field. It's all woven together. How we live in relationship to ourselves, how we live in relationship to each other, how we live in relationship to the world, and how we live in relationship to God. And it all needs to be planted in and grow from the nourishing soil of trusting, humble, and truthful integrity. So last week we named one building block of the, in the foundation of who we are, hospitality and inclusion. Today, another building block in the foundation of who we are, simplicity and authenticity. The match between what you see and what you get. The unity of inside and outside. Life becomes simpler when we seek to be true to the persons God has made us to be. The persons God wants us to be. And this, truth, humility, and trust are the gifts and the goals of the simple life. Amen.